Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. talking about Star Trek, stunts on Star Trek, and some of the awesome things that Leslie has done in her long, illustrious career as a stunt person. And uh, for a little bit more on that, I'll let Leslie explain. How are you doing tonight, Leslie? Oh, I'm doing fine. <laughs> love love <laughs> the theme song. Very appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get dumped on up there in uh, Saranac? Oh, I'm sorry. Say that again? Did you get dumped on with snow up in Saranac Lake? Yep, we got we got snowed in, but we're expecting it to go to minus thirty eight tonight. Wow, we 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 got dumped on down here in Rutland too. We got oh about eighteen inches of snow. Oh, you beat us. <laughs> That's unusual because usually you guys get it worse than we do. Well. When it's really, really cold, it actually snows less. So it was warmer this morning, and that's when we got the snowstorm. But because, like I say, it's going sub-zero now, um, it it didn't snow as much. Yeah, I know. For the first time in my life, I'm actually glad that it's cold. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've literally, I've been outside literally all day moving snow from point A to point B, taking it off the roof. I'm just tired of it, you know. <laughs> you know how it is. Oh, yeah. Well, and and then the thing is is that I have a Pekingese, which is a very short dog, and he's so low to the ground, it's like I, I have to take him outside, <laughs> and he has to do his business as quick as possible because it hurts his little feet. <laughs> I have to get him back in so he warms up. Uh, luckily, my dog's a little bigger than that. But So uh, this is our first episode of Stunt Treks, and um, I'm not a stunt person, but Leslie is. So uh, since this is our first episode, for people that haven't listened to Trek Talking 
and aren't familiar with who you are, although I can't imagine anybody not being familiar with Leslie Hoffman, um, why don't we start off this first episode uh, and give give our listeners a little a little bit about yourself so they know what to expect in upcoming episodes. Um, well, um, a quick bio of me is that uh, I was born and and raised in Saranac Lake, New York, which is in the Adirondack Park, New York, upstate, northern New York. Excuse me, people think. Uh, the Catskills is upstate New York. I'm in northern New York. I'm I'm an hour from the Canadian border. Anyways, um, uh, I always wanted to be in the entertainment industry. Uh, actually, Saranac Lake is is known for what was called the cure f- for people with tuberculosis, and vaudevillians and actors came up here to cure. Uh, so we have parks and schools and things named after actors so i don't know i don't know if that's where i got it from or or where <laughs> anyways um i thought i was going to be an actress and then i went out to uh california to, with my family to visit my brother we saw the universal stunt show which was the first time that i saw a stuntman and here was a person that was acting but also rolling on the ground and firing guns and all that kind of stuff. And I have a gymnastic background, and I suddenly realized that's what I really want to be. I want to be a stuntwoman, not not necessarily just an actress. So when I graduated high school, I went out to California and found a small gym in Santa Monica uh, that was being run by a stuntman and met other would-be stunt people, and we would practice stunt work. And uh, I have a lot of hands, big run-on sentence here. <laughs> um, we, we taught each other stunt work, and each of us went on our way and got into the Screen Actors Guild, which is the union that covers stunt people. But... Um, one of the stunt persons there was Dennis Madalone, who became the stunt coordinator of Star Trek Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek Voyager. And and we're family. I mean, some of us never, what should I say, separated from each other. We always stayed in contact. So when Dennis got this job as a stunt coordinator, which is the person that hires other stunt people, um, he tended to hire people that he knew could do stunt work from this gym in Santa Monica. So that's many of uh, the stunt people, like I say, were from this gym, which includes me. <laughs> um, but but I had a stunt career before um Star Trek. I, I had been doing stunts for 25 years now. Um, I don't know. <laughs> and then just quickly, there are different kinds. There's the stunt coordinator who basically hires the people to do the stunts, goes to production meetings, break down scripts, um, uh, you know, hires the best 
stunt person for the job that that is needed in the script. Then you have a stunt person who might actually be playing their own role. They may be, you know, someone in Starfleet or Jemadar or, or Klingon, but not necessarily... Sometimes a named role, sometimes not a named role. Not a named role is called ND, nondescript. Then you have stunt doubles, where the actor in the storyline um, has to do a stunt, and and it's too dangerous for them to be doing a stunt. It could close it could close down production. So you hire a stunt person that looks like that actor or actress and and you're made up to look like them and you do the stunt for them. And so I think Leslie, I, how long how long in total have you actually been working uh doing stunts? Obviously you didn't start with Star Trek because Star Trek was was more recent, but how far back do you go in the stunt world? Uh I joined the Screen Actors Guild in 1976, and I was on shows like Police Story, uh, movies like Airplane, uh, um, Naked Gun, the original Naked Gun. Uh, I actually had an acting role and a a stunt in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Like I say, it it was a 25-year career. I'm retired now. So you, you've worked with some of Hollywood's greats then, um, obviously, like Ricardo Maltabon, for instance, uh, on um, Fantasy Island. Um, I, well, I, I love Fantasy Island. Um, yeah, I worked. I actually worked with Ricardo Maltabon on Fantasy Island before I worked with him on Naked Gun. Um, he was... He was such a gentleman. I mean, he was the most amazing, one of the most amazing people that I ever met. And and to, um, well, working on Fantasy Island, he got to know me. And, I mean, Naked Gun wasn't until several years later. And I walk on the set and he goes, hi, Leslie. I mean, how how he remembered my name from that many years difference. Is, is just shows you what a like say what a gentleman he was. Now, when you were on uh, when you played on Naked Gun and Fantasy Island, you didn't wear a lot of prosthetic makeup like you did when you were uh, on Star Trek as say Mila or Bellana Torres, for instance. So it may have been a little easier for him to recognize you. Right, <laughs> that's true. Is that um, most of? The, well, I'm just trying to think. Is that where before Star Trek, maybe I just have a wig on, you know, that I had to be blonde, redheaded, whatever. Um, yeah, Star Trek. Suddenly, I'm I'm alien, and and uh, they'd be gluing prosthetics onto my face. I mean, it would take anywhere, depending on which alien it was, it would take um, an hour and a half to uh, a Cardassian was three hours. 
Wow, you sat in a makeup chair for three hours? Yeah. Uh, well, that's why we had 16-hour days was, I mean, you know, you arrived, you're in you're in the makeup chair and hairdressing chair, like I say, for a total of three hours, and then you have to work the day, and, and they basically only had eight, nine days to film an episode. Um, well, there's more to that, but, I mean, that's basically what they gave the production company the the allotted time. Uh, then they put the episode together, and if they felt that there were scenes missing, you might be called back a week later, two weeks later, to either redo a scene or add a scene that it would uh, make the episode you know where where there were holes in the plot it would it would hopefully close up those holes but so you uh, pretty much but the, well the one thing that I'm leaving out is that it would still take 45 minutes to get out of the makeup so uh you know hair and makeup total was 3 3 hours and 45 minutes plus you had to shoot you know shoot throughout the day and like you say that's why we were working 16-hour days. And did you act, were you actually, um, did you sit in with the actors when they were doing their, their scripts and things? Were you familiar with that? Or did they just call you in and say, jump off this bridge or, or whatever? Uh, I'm sorry, say that again. Uh, did you actually sit in with the actors on their readings? Or did they just call you in and say, Leslie, jump off this bridge? Well, again, um, uh, the script would be broken down so Dennis would know what days uh, the stunt people were needed, and he would hire us, and we would come in those certain days. But but uh, we, 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 the days of filming, we would work with the actors. We would not be at the reading because, <laughs> you know, basically the the production manager might say, and a fight happens, you know, we, <laughs> it, so, so we weren't at the, like I say, the readings that the actors did. So you, you weren't actually on set with, with the actors most of the time. You were mostly on set with the other stunt coordinators and the extras that were needed for any given scene? No, we were, uh, that no, we, we, the day of shooting, we were working with the actors. We were on the set with the actors because because when they were filming, let's say, a fight scene, um, the stunt person would do the fight scene, and then they would have the actors maybe throw a, one punch or something like that, and and so we had to be together to to be to to be able. For the editor to intercut the the fight scene together, that you know it looks like the actor was throwing the punch or taking the fall. So so no, I I worked very closely with uh, Avery and Garrett and Aaron and you know all all the stunt people on Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Now did you did you do any work on Star Trek Enterprise when that was on? 
at that point, I had gone back to New York. Um, so, no, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing on Star Trek Enterprise. Yeah, so so I only, uh, I actually had gone, I would gotten married, and I was in New York during Star Trek Next Generation. Marriage didn't work out, came back out to Los Angeles. So I was I was here, like I say, through Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. So, well, another thing is that, uh, so Dennis couldn't be, since both shows were filming at the same time, Dennis couldn't be on two different shows and production meetings and second unit. So he would have his select few people uh, as assistant stunt coordinators, and uh, I was one of the assistant stunt coordinators for Dennis. And and I got to say proudly, the only woman that was the assistant stunt coordinator. Everyone else, everyone else was a gentleman. <laughs> now, uh, what seasons was that that you worked on uh, Deep Space Nine? Uh, again, I'm having a hard time hearing you. Uh, say that again. Yeah, we're having we're having some bad weather here. The internet's acting up. Well, what seasons did you act, or did you uh, were you on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine? Okay, I'm having. I'm having problems with this. Uh, exactly what seasons were you on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine? What what scenes? Yeah. Well, um, I mean various episodes: uh, Rocks and Shoal, uh, Call to Arms, Way of the Warrior, um, uh, What We Leave Behind, or, or I may be saying that title wrong. Um, Oh, a bunch, a bunch of episodes. Um, bada bing, bada bang. I mean, that's that's wow, just you... base nine, and plus plus going to production meetings. So they kept you pretty busy. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, it, it's interesting that uh, most people think of of the cast or the characters, but believe me, there are a lot more people that make up the crew of Star Trek, and I'm not talking about the crew on the spaceship, but, but production managers, assistant production managers, editors, uh, um graphic artists, uh, 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 special effects. Well, special effects could either be computer-generated or special effects could be putting squibs, which are little explosions, on the stunt people. And and each one is its own category. Is its, uh, uh, Some of them... Well, is it... <laughs> That was my dog. <laughs> um, as long as as long as he's not outside freezing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's there's just so many people that you have the background, the people in front of the camera, you have the actors, you have the stunt people, you have the background performers. But like I say, behind the camera is just so many different categories. Wow, that sounds very, very interesting, actually. And uh, we're going to take a little brief break right now. And uh, when we come back from our break, we're going to talk with Leslie about one of her favorite Star Trek episodes. Okay. Okay, welcome back to Stunt Treks, Episode 1 with uh, Jim Yeager and Leslie Hoffman. And <clears throat> we're going to talk with Leslie right now about her Star Trek episode. So, Leslie, of all the ones that you've done, which one was your favorite episode and why? Um, I would say it would be Star Trek Voyager Blood Fever uh, for, uh, well, one thing I left out in, in my bio was, I'm one of the original Trekkies. I mean, I I went to one of the first conventions in New York City when I don't know how old I was, but uh, uh, to work on Star Trek was just so amazing. I mean, to to go to the convention was was awesome. I mean, to to be able to see these people, but then jump ahead by 20 years or 30 years to suddenly uh be actually working on a Star Trek series was was it was a dream come true. Oh, well, I'm going to have a I'm going to have a talking tribble throughout this interview. <laughs> but anyways, back to back to uh um so Star Trek uh that were Star Trek Voyager uh, Blood Fever is probably my my favorite for a bunch of reasons. Is that I'm probably one of the very few people that had contracted Pond Far, which I never understood why a Klingon would get a Vulcan. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to call it a disease, but but like I say, would get the Vulcan urge. <laughs> Someone's going to have to explain that one to me. Um, yeah, why, wait, why, why is okay, that? Okay, I just I just totally screwed that up. That was, uh, or no, that was blood fever. But my my, okay, this is, um, so Jim, are we going to be able to edit this? No, we're actually live right now. Oh. <laughs> yep, we are live. Not Memorex, but live. Uh-oh. <laughs> we can okay. just keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Okay, my favorite episode is actually Day of Honor. I mean, Blood Fever was also a great episode because, as I said, it was the Palm Fire and it was a really good fight. But uh, Day of Honor is actually uh, my favorite episode because at that point, Roxanne Dawson was either nine or ten weeks pregnant and they weren't going to allow her to do her own stunts. They weren't even going to allow her to throw a punch to be intercut with uh, the fight scene. Um, so so uh, when you see Day of Honor and and you see Ro- Roxa- or Torres being hit with the pain stick and then she finally tosses the Klingon to the ground or starts the fight, that's me all the way through the fight. There is no intercut with uh, Roxanne. Uh, What they did is they had a handheld camera, which is called a Steadicam, and um, in the fight I throw the Klingon, which was Tom Morga, to the ground. The camera focuses on him, I step out of the scene, and Roxanne steps into the scene, which is um, a common move that's done in stunt work. And uh, the cameraman swings back to now Roxanne, and she says her line like, you know, I I think I'm not going to do this. So so uh, that that is my all-time favorite episode that I worked on. Now, is that one of the episodes where you get to swing around a bat with? No, unfortunately, um, I mean, I I can fight with bat lift, but I never did do, uh, uh, in later episodes, I I guess uh, Torres did have a bat lift, but uh, no, I never never got to use a bat lift on film. (laughs) Sorry. So let's let's take a minute and talk. Being a huge Klingon fan, um, I know you have a real Batlist because I've seen it, and it's a lot better than, than my fake Batlist because yours is real. <laughs> well, real from Star Trek, <laughs> anyways. But Well, that, uh, we <laughs> there... used to do, uh, a couple stuntmen and myself used to do uh, conventions, uh, Star Trek conventions, and, and we had gotten... Uh, let's say, no longer usable props from uh, the show. And so that's why I'm in possession of uh, uh, several of, of the weapons from Star Trek. So the, so they are original to Star Trek, but, but I didn't necessarily use them on film in Star Trek. Now, Leslie, um, is there actually a a Klingon training school where uh, where you go? How do you learn how to be a Klingon and, you know, how to use a batlet or any of the Klingon weapons and speak in Klingon and, uh, you know, like Roxanne does? Uh, is that in the script? Do they have someone on set to teach you that, or is there actually a Klingon school? Unfortunately, there there is no such thing as a Klingon school, uh, I go all the way back to the gym in Santa Monica where where we 
became proficient with quarter staffs, you know, like Robin Hood and and Little John, or or fencing with swords. Um, I mean, that's that's the skill that it takes to use a bat lift. Uh, the bat lift was created by Dan Curry, who actually is uh, special effects. <laughs> Uh, he created vortex, you know, that people would fall into these holes. And I mean, Dan Curry was, or is, absolutely an amazing person. But but he also is a martial artist. And and what would happen was, uh, the script would say, you know, alien weapon, and props would come up with what they felt was an alien weapon. But it would either be way too top heavy or bottom heavy. And uh, it was Dan Curry that created the bat lift, which I, I think I've been told is sort of uh, a takeoff of of a real Japanese weapon. I may be I may be wrong on that one, but uh, like I say, uh, Dan Curry created the bat lift, and and it's so uh, symmetrically balanced. I mean, it it it's just so easy. Well, I guess I guess you got to get used to it. But once you get used to it, it is so balanced that you know you could hold. If you had your finger in the middle hole, you could you could hold the bout lift with one finger without it, you know, tipping to one side or the other. That's so. So now, if if you have your hands in the um, the first and third hole, I mean, now now you're using it more like a quarter step staff like say like Robin Hood so so you wow. just I mean it's <laughs> I actually I'm not sure how to describe it other than other than um you know I, I would say all weapons to some degree um uh, are equal to other weapons and and you just kind of modify your moves Wow. Now, uh, when you were playing a Klingon on Star Trek, um, did they have to make a mold of your head? How did they get the the Klingon prosthetic for you? Are they all custom made, or do they just have a whole rack of Klingons over there? Um, Well, for Torres, it was custom made because she was half human, but but basically they had... um, a generic set of uh, Klingon foreheads. I mean, a Klingon really is just uh, the forehead and and a nose piece, if I remember correctly. Cardassian has actually, I think, nine different pieces that they had to glue to your face and neck. So, so no, it's not a it's not a whole um, headpiece. I mean, it's it's separate pieces glued on onto your face you know and then and then makeup would just uh take uh you know tone it tone it to be all one color you know would match your the well or or be the klingon color but but uh, <laughs> which reminds me of a story of there was uh you know you had your regular makeup people who who knew how to put on the um uh, the the pieces 
and basically they would, how do I call it, they would tack glue around your forehead and then put the piece on that way. But but it's still they were still trying to save the piece to use it again. So so they would use like a small paintbrush and solvent to remove it at the end of the day. But but one time when I was being um, a Klingon, they had this uh, new uh, makeup person in, and they put glue all across my forehead and put the piece on and I don't know it took it took well over an hour to get this thing off my head I mean it, wow. it, it was almost permanently stuck there <laughs> <laughs> Now um do you actually do you have any of um any of the uh, head pieces or uniforms that you wore as a Klingon from Star Trek Um I don't have any of the prosthetics. Like I say, they they kept reusing prosthetics uh, un, until until they fell apart. I mean, so so the, to that that question, the answer is no. Uh, what happened was um, when when the series ended, Paramount decided that they wanted to get rid of all the Star Trek costumes from. The original Star Trek up to, I don't know, this might have been pre-Enterprise. I mean, so let's say the original Star Trek up to Voyager. And they call, they called up this company called It's a Wrap that's in Burbank, California. And basically just, I don't know if you would call it, did a consignment over to them. And they put it on eBay which unfortunately I didn't realize this right from the very beginning. This is a long explanation to answer your question, but but I actually do have uh, Alana Torres's, um, I'll call it repelling suit that she wore in Blood Fever. I do have that, and and my name tag, and it is my it is my costume because you can tell by the name tag that's sewn into the costume says Leslie Hoffman as opposed to Roxanne Dawson. And do you have a do you have a communicator that they would wear on their uniforms? Do you happen to have one of those? Um I mean I have the the badge and again my my brain is slowly go do they call it the pips? The yeah. you know the insignia, the not the insignia but the the rank Aren't those yeah. called pips? Yes, they are. Yeah, okay, so so the repelling suit has the communicator and it has the pips on it. Now, Leslie, I've heard a lot of stories about those. How exactly are the communicators attached to the uniform? That's... In in the original Star Trek, they weren't even communicators. You know, they were just sewn on, glued on to the to the uniform. Uh, it wasn't until Next Generation that they came up with the idea of the insignia being a communicator or a location finder. It seemed to serve multiple purposes. 
Uh, the way they attached it was actually with Velcro. There was a Velcro, you know, piece on the back of the uh, communicator and a piece of Velcro on, on the costume, and they just stick that on. That way, that way, like, at le- as opposed to talking about Klingons, let's talk about Star Trek uh, or Star Trek, um, the Star Trek fleet members, is that that way you could have the different pips. Well, now the pips were were attached by, um, great, like I say, <laughs> the brain's not working tonight, um, the snaps. You know, uh, they weren't Velcroed on. They were snapped on. So there was, you know, half of the snap was sewn into the costume, and the other part of the snap was uh, on the back of of the pip. So you could change the rank, you know, depending on who's wearing the costume, you could change them to whatever... um, um, rank they were and did they did those ever fall off while you were doing stunts uh i'll say that it never happened to me i mean the the, the snaps are pretty good um so so it never happened to me i don't know if it happened to any other stunt person but uh talking about things falling off um Reminds me of uh, Dennis was stunt doubling um, the the young cadet in I think the episode called The Valiant, uh, which is a Deep Space Nine episode where um, all these younger cadets have taken a spaceship and they're going to go attack somebody. I I can't remember the storyline exactly. But Dennis was sitting in the captain's chair, and and the the ship gets hit with with whatever you know phaser shot, or, and and I don't understand how the chair dislodges from the floor, but it did. And Dennis goes over backwards. I mean that's what the stunt was supposed to be, but if you watch the scene very carefully, you see this thing bouncing across the floor. And it actually was a phaser. And the phasers were made out of rubber. So that's why I'm, like I say, you see this thing, you see this thing just bouncing its way across the floor because it came out of the, <laughs> the holster or, or whether it was supposed to be Velcroed on to the side of De- Dennis. That, that's funny. Yeah, it was. Well, it, it's it's in. I guess it's interesting how people watch episodes. I mean, I try to watch episodes for the storyline, but then again, the minute I see a fellow stunt person, or 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 you know, I know I'm looking at the actors that I work with, or I see a fellow stunt person, and and. I don't know, for some odd reason, my eye will catch, like, say, uh, uh, something that's gone wrong but but may not really be seen by the audience, like, in this case, the phaser. 
Yeah, I never I never noticed that. That gives me something to go back and look for. Yeah, just just run it in slow motion when uh when the ship gets hit and and like I say the captain's chair goes over backwards, you right right in across the bottom of the screen you see this thing bouncing and you're going well like you say to me it's like what in the world was that? And and I had to go back and look at it again, and I'm, like I say, I suddenly realized it was his phase. It was the rubber phaser bouncing across the floor. <laughs> you know, I, I always, you know, when you when you see it on TV, Leslie, they look really good. I never thought they were made out of rubber. They they're really good looking for being rubber. Oh yeah, well that's uh, you know especially the bat lifts. The bat lifts do have a metal core to them, but they are covered in rubber and then painted silver. And then actually the leather, whatever you want to call it, hand hand part is, is just bootstraps that have been wrapped around and glued into place. I mean, it's, it, it, it's interesting in um, an episode. And again, I'm, I'm, by Purgatory's Light was it was a two part episode. One of the episodes was called By Purgatory's Light, I can't or Inferno's Light and Purgatory something. It was it was where the Jemadars were fighting um the kidnapped people from Deep Space Nine and and if you look around the arena that they're fighting in those are actually tomato plant uh, baskets turned upside down and painted, I forget what color, gray or whatever color. So, so yeah, they would, they would take anything and everything and, and make it part of the, the, uh, the theme. Well, we're going to take a little break here, and we, we'll be right back to talk with Leslie Hoffman about Star Trek. I am Locutus of Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life as it has been is over. From this time forward, you will service us. So Leslie, as a Star Trek fan, I guess any Star Trek fan's big fantasy would would actually be to work on Star Trek. So what was a typical day like for you on the set of Star Trek? Well, it could be, depending on whether we were on location or we were on the soundstage, um, I mean, your your call could be 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, um, or if they knew they weren't going to do the stunt until later in the day, uh, you know, you might not get called in until the afternoon, or or that they knew that the stunt wasn't even going to be done until late in the evening. I mean, you know, it's interesting that California created these carpool lanes and hoping that uh, people would, uh, you know, Group together to get to a place. Well, that that's 
basically impossible for actors or stunt people because, like you say, it isn't like uh, um, the whole cast or crew is called in at the same time. I mean, believe me, the crew was there before even 5 o'clock to get the sets ready. So they're, they're the first ones there, you know, and then depending on, like say, what what scene you were going to be in, and also getting you through makeup and wardrobe and and uh, hair and all that kind of stuff, you know they had to stagger our times. That uh, there wasn't like 20 people trying to get into the makeup trailer or the hairdresser's trailer. Um, so you know uh, you drive down to the set, you get onto the lot. I was allowed to drive onto the lot and park in the parking lot. You walk over to whichever sound stage. There were there were multiple sound stages to for the Star Trek series, so you have to walk over to whichever sound sound stage they told you to go to. Um, sign in, uh, like I say, go to makeup and hair, and then get into wardrobe. And uh, one of the favorite lines was "Hurry up and wait." I mean, you know, like I say, you could have a 7 o'clock call, get get all ready, be done by 9.30, 10 o'clock, and maybe they wouldn't be even filming my stunt until 5 in the evening. I mean, that, that would happen a lot. Um, so, so uh, well, I enjoyed working on Deep Space Nine because of because of the set, the promenade set. I mean, it 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 was just. I mean, you knew you had to be around, but but it was fun to go up up the circular staircase and be on the second floor and go down the other side of the circular staircase, or or you'd be uh, on the Paramount lot, you know, walking outside and and. Maybe I'd go visit the special effect artist uh, Gary Monac, and uh, which brings up another story of of uh, where again it was Tom Morgan was dressed up as a Jemadar, and and Tom and I walked into Gary's uh, trailer, and uh, they had they had a um, I believe it was a gecko. <laughs> if it wasn't a gecko, well, yeah, no, it must have been a gecko. Um, anyways, this gecko looked at at Tom dressed up as a uh, Jemadar, and he didn't like him. That Tom was too big of a lizard for this <laughs> reptile, <laughs> and it hissed at him. <laughs> so, so it it. What should I say? It was. It was hard work, and yet it was fun in games as well. But but when you're doing a stunt, it's not fun in games. I mean, it is hard work. So would you have to stay? Would you have to be dressed up as um, Bolana Taurus or a Jemadar or a Cardassian? You would have to report there in the morning and stay in that costume all day until they released you. Correct. Right. I mean that that's. That's why we would have such an early call because because they had to have you in costume 
even though even though it may turn out that they may not even use you for another five hours, they just wanted you ready to go because well again it's it's a tight it really is a tight schedule um I mean when they get to the stunt, you better be ready to be on the set to do the stunt. You can't say, I'm sorry, I'm just getting into my costume now. That that, that would not make many people happy if, if that was what was going on. And that goes for the actors, too. I mean, again, the actors had very early calls, and, and uh, well, let's say Michael Dorn or whatever. I mean, he... he he would have to be dressed up as Worf and be Worf all day long. He didn't necessarily have his costume on all day long, but uh, um, he he definitely had to have the headpiece and the hair on. You know, may, so maybe they when you went out him. for lunch. When you went out for lunch, Leslie, you were going out for lunch dressed up as as a Cardassian. Well, they would serve lunch. Either they would have a catering truck come to the soundstage, which was also very interesting because there would be a lineup of people of Starfleet and and Jemadars or or Klingons or you know, <laughs> and and there was tours at at Paramount. So I'm sure I'm sure. The the uh, people that were touring Paramount probably found it very amusing to see these various humans and aliens <laughs> at the lined up at the at the catering truck eating. Also, Paramount had a, um, a commissary, which is a cafeteria, and and depending on how much time you had you might be able to go over to the commissary and eat over there. I mean, it it is like um, you see these old movies or movies about movies or, or uh, I uh, <laughs> using it sort of as a joke, but yet it's real. It's like in Blazing Saddles when when the fight happens and it ends up in the commissary and, and you see... I think there was someone dressed up as Hitler, and there's someone dressed up as this and that. I mean, that's the way it was at the commissary. I mean, uh, Karen and I, my wife Karen, we had a friend who got a job as a staff intern working on The Next Generation back in 1991. And, of course, we went out there for a set tour, and it happened to be one of the days when they they had uh, Mark Leonard on and Michael Bourne and they, it was a closed set because they didn't want anybody to know that Michael Dorn was playing Worf's grandfather in the new Star Trek VI movie. It was a top secret thing. So we couldn't go on the set. So we just we were just hanging out at Universal, I mean at Paramount Studios, and who walked by us but Riker, Data, and Geordi. Right, and, exactly. Um, they were in their full costumes, and for, for me, I, I – uh, they told us, my, my friend Carol told us that you have to be cool. If they think you're a tourist or a fan, they'll throw you out. So Karen and I are sitting there in front of the commissary, and the, Beta, they were just fooling around and prodding each other and joking and laughing and having a blast. And I, All I wanted to do was take a picture, but I had to be cool. <laughs> and uh, right. it was it was so surrealistic to see them 
dressed in their outfits, but completely out of character. And I exactly. wanted to go in there and well, see I, what they like ordered. One day, uh, I was working on Voyager, and this this is true. The way you get around Paramount lot is on a bicycle. Yeah, I mean, you either walk or or you have a bicycle. And and I'm over at Voyager, and here comes Kachuk. Uh, my now my, my now my tongue isn't re- Kachuk. Okay, I can't say it. You say it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Who are we talking about? Um, Robert Bel- Beltran. Chakotay. Yeah, he comes Chakotay. riding in on a bicycle with, with I don't even remember if she was dressed up as an alien or not, but there was a girl sitting in the basket on the front of his bicycle. That 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 stuff is so great when you see it. You want it. You want to take a picture of it, but you but you can't. <laughs> right. Well, that's that. I mean, things have changed so much. Is that when I was working on the set, there weren't anything as smartphones. So so uh, besides that, you really weren't supposed to have a camera on the Paramount lot. I did sneak a camera in. And I was able to take pictures, some pictures of of us. So I do have some photos of of uh, the stunt people. Um, or sometimes they would let you buy uh, still shots. But that was even interesting because you had to go to the production office, and they would let you look at what the still their their hired still photographer had taken but the actors or maybe it was even the production company uh some of the you know you're looking at a proof sheet which is you know all the strips of film on one piece of paper and and some of them would have red x's through them which means that you could not buy that picture that picture could not be sold uh, so you know, I would be looking for something from from the stunt. Um, well, so I mean, usually stunts weren't weren't xed out, but it was interesting to look at a spreadsheet at a proof sheet and and you know notice that uh, that there was definitely pictures that were not going to be reproduced. Well, um, if anybody's interested, you can go to the Leslie Hoffman Appreciation Organization fan page on Facebook. Um, you can go there and, and check out some great videos of Leslie and some of the stunts that she's done in her career. I'm still working on the Facebook page because I do I do Trek Talk and I do Comic Corner. Um, I'm doing Stunt Trek with Leslie. I've got a lot of pokers in the fire, um, so I'm, I'm really, really busy. Um, but we're going to add a lot of sections to that page, so just keep checking back. Make sure you go there and like the Leslie Hoffman Appreciation Organization fan page, and that way as we add some new sections and update it, you won't miss out on any of the fun. Plus, that's a great way you can go there and you can communicate directly with Leslie. You can leave a message right there. Leslie can read it and get right back to you. It's it's a, a really good um, 
personal type of way to get in touch with people and talk to them. So I think it's a great page, and we're always adding to it, and we'd love to have you join us. So, Leslie, this wraps up Episode 1 of Stunt Tracks. I think we had a good time. Oh, definitely. And and I've been in touch with other stunt people that worked on the series, and I hope that uh, we can interview them in the future and, and talk about different episodes that they worked on. Yes, we're going to uh this is our first show, so we're gonna we're gonna continue. We'll have another show next week and we'll talk with Leslie some more about some of her Star Trek experiences and and uh, we'll try to pick one an episode that she's done and talk about it each week and give you guys some insight and maybe talk maybe you'll learn some things you didn't know about Star Trek or stunts or uh, you know, bat lifts are made of rubber. Who knows what you're gonna learn, but um, you tune into stunt tracks, and you never know what you're going to learn because Leslie is a mountain of knowledge, right, Leslie? <laughs> I, I appreciate the, <laughs> you saying that. Um, I, it just was a really memorable experience, so a lot of things remain in my head about it. So, so I, I guess the short answer is yes. Uh, the other thing is that uh, if People could, uh, well, either write in at the moment or I understand hopefully in the future we'll be able to start taking calls. But but for right now, if people want to write in with questions, that that would uh, definitely help with, with uh, our show. It would be highly appreciated. Now, um we're currently, our show is live right now. If you're listening to us right now on Sunday night, we are currently live. We do have a phone number, as always, 646-668-2433 is our number here. And normally we have those phone lines open so that you can call. However, with the big snowstorm that got dumped on us, I, got, I was out doing my snow removal all day. I got called into work. I didn't get back to my house until after 530 tonight. And um, unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to get in touch with Leslie and properly um, set up the show and program the show and get all the invites out and whatnot like we normally do. And that's why this was kind of a seems like a spur of a moment thing. But in the future, we will have the links and the phone numbers and everything posted on our Facebook page and also on the Leslie Hoffman Appreciation Organization fan page so that you guys will know what's going on and the number to call to talk directly to Leslie. So with that, I'm going to say good night, and thank you, Leslie. Oh, thank you, Jim. And uh, we will be back, same bat time. Well, I don't know if it's the same bat time, but um, I will get with Leslie. We will get the time narrowed down. Hopefully we won't have another big snowstorm, and uh, you guys will be in the know. But we will be back with Episode 2 next Sunday. at some point. <laughs> I'll let you know. I'll let you guys know as soon as I clear it up with Leslie. So thank you very much, everybody. Uh, stay warm, stay dry, and we'll talk to you all again next week. Good night. Good night. Let's see what's out there. Engage. Engage.